Hello and welcome to The Appetite, a podcast brought to you by Opal Food and Body Wisdom, an eating disorder treatment center in Seattle, Washington. I'm your host, Carter Umhow, a therapist, artist, and writer. The Appetite is all about issues of food, body, sport, and mental health. But we've never actually talked about a really very quite particular and important function of the body, which is fertility, pregnancy, um, and the kind of perinatal experience. And for those of you that don't know that word, perinatal refers to basically the whole full spectrum of the fertility, pregnancy, birth experience. I'm going to be sitting down with Davina Simmons, a Seattle doula, and Julie Davidson, a Seattle therapist, to talk with them about their work in supporting people that are dealing with fertility issues, pregnancy, and the postpartum experience. And this might be a conversation that you're automatically like, yes, we've never talked about this. I can't wait. I'm thinking about these questions all the time. Or you might go, whoa, I've, I've never actually cared much about fertility or that's just not on my radar right now, or it's actually really far away. I was pregnant a long time ago, or I've never even intended to be pregnant, or I can't get pregnant. Like, there's so much in this conversation. But I just want to kind of introduce the conversation first off as an opportunity to kind of think through the ways in which we talk about pregnancy and parenthood and fertility in our culture. So this is not just for the person that is currently experiencing that, but we will definitely be diving into some of the issues really at the heart of the experience, the identity crisis that actually can happen. Just a couple of things before we begin. You will hear some more information about this at the end of the episode, but just to kind of plug it right away, Julie and Davina are co-hosting a retreat for postpartum folks um, in the Seattle area. They have a wonderful retreat that they've done before, and it's called Tend and Renew, and it's meant to be a super nourishing and normalizing time for for postpartum people. So these events are going to be March 28th in the Madrona area of Seattle and June 20th in Woodenville, Washington. So we're definitely going to get into that, but you'll find some more information about that in our description box. And also you can find information about that through Davna's Instagram at Rooted Birth Doula and Julie's Instagram at On Being a Mother. So welcome. Thank you. Hello. Yes. Hi. Hi. So I'd love to hear from each of you just a little bit about what you do. I'm Davina Simmons, and I am a birth, postpartum, and death doula. And I also am a lactation educator. So I just support folks who are pregnant and also in their postpartum period with kind of integrating all that that is and all that that does to life. And I imagine most people know what a doula is, but for those that don't, can you explain what that word means? Think about it as like your birth companion or your postpartum companion. So your best friend without the emotional baggage. (laughs) Um, Someone who is kind of a walking resource of information and emotional support, psychological support, and then physical support who kind of connects you to resources in the community as you need them. Amazing. Yeah. If it was possible to have a life doula, I think I would have one. (laughs) Me too. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Julie, what do you do? I am a psychotherapist and a mother, so I work with folks with anxiety and depression, trauma, and recently have moved my work into working with a lot of folks that are having a perinatal experience, so pregnancy and postpartum, and have started doing some home visits, so supporting folks in their postpartum when they're in the thick of it, in their home, don't have either access or ability to be leaving 
during that time. Um, and it's been such a sweet thing to be able to enter into that. But also people that are bringing their babies to my office and working through the myriad of things in that time period. Yeah, it's really rich with a lot for everyone that is coming into it. So so as someone as someone that really hasn't had to think very much about the perinatal experience, I would love to hear from both of you kind of in your own areas what and how you think about that perinatal experience as being really unique to obviously that part of life, but then also kind of like what people don't typically understand about that time. I think one thing is that I think it's a really underestimated time of struggle, that if you see someone holding a baby, they are they are struggling with something. And that postpartum, especially for a birthing person, is is something that is actually going to alter your body. It, it alters your relationship to your body. It alters your relationship to your support, to your friends, to partners. It alters your relationship to work, to your own identity. This fabulous perinatal psychologist, Alexandra Sachs, talks about this term matrescence, which she's talking about that specifically for mothers, but she talks about it as akin to adolescence and that mm. we could actually be thinking about this time period of pregnancy and postpartum like we think about adolescence. We all have a familiarity with when someone goes through adolescence, their hormones are changing, their body is changing, their social environment is changing, and we all have a lot of kind of grace and understanding for those years being really difficult. And that cocktail is is pretty much mirrored in that time period. So you're going through adolescence, but then you're raising a human and you don't have any sleep. Oof. I think it's just a really underestimated transition that is full of so much struggle. And what is reflected typically in the media and not really the literature, but just how how you might think about somebody having a baby is, oh, how exciting. This is something that's fulfilled for them. And they're so excited. And you would be surprised how many people have really ambivalent feelings about becoming a parent, uh, even if they wanted to become a parent. I think that the perinatal time, pregnancy and postpartum, are also very deeply spiritual. And a lot of people are caught by surprise in the process of being so removed from your intuition for most of your life. And when people get pregnant, they're all of a sudden very infantilized. It's very much like you can't eat this, you can't do this. And they're separated from some of the things that are basically like lifelines to them, whether that's relationship to exercise, whether that's relationship to food. Like there's a lot of things that get taken away and shifted around. And you don't get a lot of choice in that, even if your intuition is telling you that it's actually okay and that your body can handle something. And I think the same thing happens in birth when people are telling you that your body is doing this or not doing this fast enough or is doing too much of this. When you are in the birthing process, you go inward. You go into this other dimension, into this other world. I have clients who say, like, I feel like every contraction is me leaving the room and then coming back again. Mm -hmm. And so in the postpartum time, you've been opened. You've had a baby in whatever way. That's a belly birth, a vaginal birth, whatever it looks like. And there is a time where you're wide open and you feel the most vulnerable you've ever felt in your life. And then you're caring for something that's vulnerable as well. 
And they liken postpartum, that new postpartum phase, to a birthing person being an infant parent. And so there's a lot of distress, a lot of, I don't know what this is, unfamiliar territory, I need someone to care for me. And then your baby is also making those demands on you as well. And so with that comes grief. You can start grieving in pregnancy about all the things that will change and that will shift. And a lot of people, as they get closer to their birthing time, start to experience grief differently. And then when you move into the postpartum time, it really hits you. And there's this tension of, I'm supposed to be happy that I have a baby who is healthy or a baby who is alive, but I'm really feeling sad and destroyed and regretting my decision to become a parent. And and no one is giving people permission to hold both of those things, you know, together and in intention. So, mm. yeah. I have so many questions about that. And and I, I think I want to go back to maybe the start of this perinatal experience a little bit just so that we can kind of track some of that. I was really fascinated by, by what you were saying about sort of this infantilizing of the pregnant woman. I, I'd love to hear a little bit more for kind of what those infantilizing experiences would look like specifically. I think that a lot of what I hear from my clients is, well, my doctor said this, and so I'm just going to do it. Or my doctor thinks this, and so... You know, I, I feel like that's the right course. And a lot of the times that I'm working with clients, I'm asking them, but like, what do you feel? Like, what is your intuition saying or what is your gut saying? And there's a lot of gut checks that I have with my clients mm -hmm. because I feel like most of the time people know moderation. You know, people can people can get a sense of what moderation might look like. And when you're in that really vulnerable space of carrying life. And, you know, everybody has their individual histories and unique stories. When someone says all of a sudden you have to just cut this out, like you can't do this anymore, sometimes that makes some people go one way and makes some other people go another way. And I talk to my clients a lot because there's, what is it, you can't eat, is it tuna? You're not supposed to of eat. the mercury. Yeah. Tuna because of the mercury. You're not supposed to. Yeah. We hear, you know, different things. Sushi. And, yeah. You're not supposed to eat undercooked meat. Right. You're not supposed to eat undercooked eggs. And what, what a lot of people forget is that that... That might be reflective of what you can't do here in our country, but you think about other countries where people are drinking wine with dinner because that's what they've done their whole life, or people are eating sushi because that's a standard meal in their culture. Sometimes even having those conversations of like, what do you think this would look like without trying to, you know, kind of convince someone to go against medical advice, mm -hmm. but more so to start knowing what it means to check in with yourself and knowing what it means to ask yourself what you think, because it starts early and it moves into birth when you're like, I don't know what my body is doing, but I feel okay. And maybe even parenting when you get five different pieces of unsolicited advice that's conflicting and you have to make a decision. And so really trying to teach people you're going to hear all of this information and what are you going to do with it? What works for your family? What works for you? What feels good for you? Right. Mm. Yes. There's often a sort of over-controlled temperament in people with eating disorders. Mm. And I'm just imagining what it would be like to be in recovery from an eating disorder after maybe a lot of work of being attuned to your body finally for the first time and letting yourself be emotional, <laughs> letting yourself have mm -hmm. needs, letting yourself understand your appetite, letting yourself understand, oh, do I want a little bit of that? Do I want a little bit of this? Am I hungry for a long run or do I want to get in the hot tub? Like all of those yeah. big questions that are about being attuned to your body. And then suddenly you're like, you go to the doctor once and you're smacked with like a ton of new rules that you're supposed to abide by. 
I love the idea that actually we should be moving women and people to like continued attunement to what is my instinct around this? Because that's going to go beyond, obviously, like just what to eat during pregnancy, but then what to do when your child isn't sleeping. Yeah. Like that that attunement is really going to help. I think that that's going to help a lot in the birth and the entire pregnancy and postpartum period. I think it's a skill for everybody to be able to have to be working on their own intuition when it comes to relating to the food and body. But I think that in pregnancy, it you can find care providers that are actually trying to help you listen to yourself and to your body. So it was a really fascinating experience for me in my first pregnancy. The care providers that I was surrounding myself with were just actually saying that most of the things that I had heard I wasn't supposed to do in pregnancy that I could do in pregnancy and were really just teaching me how to learn more about those things and what was the reasoning behind those things. Oh, I can't eat. I'm not supposed to eat undercooked meat. Well, if you're actually paying attention to the source of that meat, then if you trust the source, then that's something to consider. And to actually trust your body on what smells good and what doesn't. I was all I wanted was kimchi in my first trimester, you know, and that like actually soothes nausea because it's fermented. And so your body really knows and can tell you so much. But I think that it, I resonate with the infantilizing because I think that even in the pregnancy time and in the birth time, there's actually a lot of opportunity for other people to be in control of your body and of your birth experience. And there really is a movement towards teaching birthing people and women how to tune back in and that your body can do that. And I had two very different birthing experiences with my daughter and with my son, one in which I really knew something and my healthcare provider essentially just made a call that was different. She she just kind of didn't believe me. And that led to me being transferred and having a pretty traumatic birth. And my second child, after doing a lot of therapy around the trauma of that birth, I got healthcare professionals. I got midwives that were really resonant with, with listening to me and me telling them about that experience. And they just took that into so much consideration. And I had an incredibly embodied experience birthing my son, listening to my own body and having people listen, listen to me, listen to myself. And it's amazing what can happen. And there's so many different things that can happen, even if you are listening to your body. So it's not that that is the whole experience for everyone. Or if you're listening to your body, that means nothing could go wrong. But I think that we are undertaught how to listen to our bodies in general in the world. But it's something that becomes really central when you're pregnant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to say that that's it's against the norm of culture in general. Like, mm-hmm. obviously, when when we're talking on this podcast more broadly about just being attuned to, to what food you want to eat, that is like, I mean, no way. Most people don't believe that that's okay. Yeah. They never get that messaging that you should trust, particularly with the pregnancy where the the norm is to think of it as like a medical issue i guess yeah like it's a medical issue birth is an emergency yeah it sounds like it can also be traumatic no matter what happens can be right Mm -hmm. it can be a lot of different things but that that's an entire process and story that needs to be processed and and acknowledged as like something to 
I feel redundant using the word process, but I feel like it's something to process, which speaks so much to the fact Mm -hmm. that there's not much emphasis on process in the mainstream. No. No. And I think that, you know, thousands and thousands of years ago when we were more oriented towards being a village of people and being in community in that way, there was more witnessing of someone who had had a baby. There was more reverence for the journey that is pregnancy and the journey that birth is because birth is this journey where you go and I get a little woo-woo here but you go down into this underworld almost and you are everything that you know and how to be and how to do and how to act is tested and it's stripped away and then you come out with this baby and you're like (sighs) like it's this no matter what kind of birth you had it's a journey and I think that we don't ask folks enough to tell us their birth story. We don't ask mm-hmm. folks enough to talk to us about what the first couple weeks of, you know, integration with your new baby was like. The more we allow people to really dig into their stories and understand how important their story is to shaping how they began parenthood or how they began parenting one child or another child, it's so Important, I think, that just being witnessed when someone sees you, the healing that can happen. Um, And I think speaking to talking about the trauma that lies in birth, I think that as a doula, I can watch a birth unfold and be traumatized. But the person who had the baby might be like, that was the best fucking thing I've ever done. Well, pardon my French. (laughs) Um, And so I can't we can't always assume, you know, from our own experiences what someone else's experience might be. And Mm -hmm. that's why it's so important to ask, Mm -hmm. to ask people to tell their story and how important it is to to really witness the warriors, because that's what birthing people are like. Mm -hmm. That's who they are. Like they're warriors and they have fought a very particular fight and really embodied something that is otherworldly. Like, that truly is, like, the closest thing, I think, to to the veil of life and death. And we don't ask about it, you know, and how that, that just feels so wrong. And I think that speaks to some of the emptiness and, like, the empty feelings that can come in postpartum. To have gone through something that feels like, oh, I was a warrior and I did this. And then have all the focus be on the baby and all of the focus be on, on this new life that you have. And to just... I, I can remember just this feeling of like, uh, uh, just feeling like, okay, I know it is supposed to, of course, be all about the baby now, but did anybody just see what I just did? I, I was walking mm-hmm. around just being, wanting to tell my birth story to strangers. Like, this was just a couple days ago, y'all. <laughs> I did that. I, I birthed the whole human all by myself. <sighs> and feeling so proud. And I think asking is so crucial. And when I think about the listeners of this podcast for people who aren't pregnant or have been or maybe never even want to, most people know someone that is. And I think that that's just so applicable to anybody that's listening of knowing how you can support someone who has had a baby. Because if we can be better communities and better villages and actually know how to show up, that can change somebody's experience just by being asked, how how was your birth story? That's just not a question we're taught to ask. Mm -mm. Definitely not. Yeah. Definitely We're not not really taught how to care for the people that we love who have had babies. Like we we show up one time and hold the baby and, you know, then we leave and there's this whole other world unfolding Mm -hmm. that we're not tapped into. And I don't think that we're 
we're taught how to do that well. I want to hear more about the unfolding uh, as you both conceptualize it and have experienced it. Yeah. I think <laughs> I'm like, whoa, what is how long do we have? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there are a lot of layers, and I'll speak to some. And mm-hmm. um, one is the physical change that happens. When you are in a postpartum body, you're softer. And I always tell my clients, you're softer so your baby has a place to be. Mm-hmm. Like your baby needs places to be on you. And I know that it's hard to reconcile that and, and figure out, like, how do I feel about this new body? And sometimes they're becomes this detachment when you have breasts that are now on demand when they meant something different before you were pregnant. Mm -hmm. And I think our society really sexualizes breasts, which can sometimes even make breastfeeding more challenging in the beginning when you're you're fumbling your way through it and your baby is figuring it out and you're figuring it out. I think breastfeeding is one of the journeys of postpartum that is not getting enough. It's not highlighted enough. It's not talked about enough. And so it's shocking when people are trying to feed their babies at 3 a.m. and they don't know how to get their baby to latch and Mm -hmm. they don't know where to go and what to do. And so I think physically there's a lot of depletion that happens. You lose high volumes of blood and fluid um, when you have a baby. Um, and, And if you've had a belly birth, you just underwent massive surgery, abdominal surgery. And we often tell people in the Western medicine, when you have an OB, it's we'll see you in six weeks. It's after like after just C-section. Af- uh, it's, after- a week, it's a week after C-sections usually, but after just a vaginal birth, it's we'll see you in six oh weeks. Oh my god! And, and it's then an eternity. Yeah, right. It and really, and is. I just had a client today tell me who she's an OR nurse, and she just told me I would never put a stitch in someone and then not look at it the next day. And they sent her home, and she's on day six with no one looking at her stitches, and she has to wait six weeks, and they'll dissolve at some point. But hopefully, you know, hopefully it goes. Okay. Hopefully it goes okay. Jeez. And so. So we're really failing postpartum families in this way. But um, with the body, there's a lot of depletion. And when you're nursing, you are losing fluids by giving your baby milk and you might still be bleeding. And so like hydration is so important. And most times people are bringing, you know, newly postpartum people, cheesy casseroles and like fried foods. And while we also need to think about access to food and why it's important for people to eat whatever they can eat, if you have options and you have choice, it's so important to talk about the nutritional piece of repairing your body and your tissues and your muscles that have just mm-hmm. did one of the the biggest energetic donations they will ever do. And so physically, I think there's this mind-body game going on where you're like, I can walk, so I'm going to go to Target. And I'm six days postpartum. And then you come home and you're like, I overdid it and I can't move like Mm -hmm. for a couple days and I'm bleeding more. And so having a lot of conversations with people about um, entering the postpartum phase and having the lowest expectations you could ever have and like lowering them even more if you can. In terms of what you're going to be able to do? Yeah, and Mm -hmm. everything. I think what you're going to be able to do, what you're going to feel, how people are going to show up for you, what your baby's going to be like. I think everybody has this idea of I'm the exception. And, like, this isn't going to happen to me. Like, my story is going to be different from all of my friends' horror stories or great stories. Like, And so I think physically people can really feel kind of cheated in some ways. Like, they've not been told how to care for themselves postpartum. And we live in a society where we're hyper-independent. And so we don't even know how to let people care for us. And, you know, postpartum doulas are considered a luxury instead of a right where you're having a second pair or third pair of hands in the house if your family is far away or not 
apt to help you or maybe it's not a good dynamic to have your family in your house. Mm -hmm. So I think that's one of the that's the physical aspect. I could go deeper, but I think that's like the first layer of, you know, the Mm -hmm. postpartum time physically. I would add, I guess it's part of the physical aspect, but when I think about sleep and kind of the endless amoeba-like days that a postpartum person is going through, that their day does not end at 8 p.m. and they go to sleep, but it is, it's this round the clock. And so I think some of the isolation can also come in the middle of the night when it is dark, when your friends aren't coming over. You know, Even if you have your community that's coming to visit, even if you have that, they're not coming at 2 a.m. when you don't know how to feed your baby or when your nipples are traumatized. And there's just all of these little details that feel so consuming in those first couple of weeks and beyond, but especially when it's brand new and you've been thrust almost into I've thrust into almost like a, a sport that you don't know how to play. The Hunger Games literally. <laughs> it is the literal <laughs> Hunger Games. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I think that it can just be actually a little bit crazy making, especially in the middle of the night when you don't know what to do. And I remember one of the greatest gifts a friend of mine, it was the middle of the night. I don't know why she was up. But she sent me a link to a postpartum photographer. It was a photographer that does a lot of um, breastfeeding photographs. Jade Be All Photography, I think is what it is. Anyways, it was this wonderful wake-up moment for me where I just didn't feel alone in the middle of the night. Um, But with that, I think that it could be easy to have your phone in the middle of the night to not feel alone. And so if you are opening that up to welcome some of the really helpful messages that might help you feel less alone. You're also opening the door to a ton of messages that would bring a lot of shame, a lot of self-doubt, a lot of confusion, further isolation with that shame. And so it's just a minefield in, in postpartum for the messaging that can come through. And it can be pretty impossible to stay away from those messages and to to block those things out. And I think that that just leads people to a, a mental place that can be really difficult. And maternal mental health is just a dicey area where people are not getting enough support with their mental health postpartum. And the stats right now are somewhere between like one in seven people postpartum will develop postpartum depression. And there's so many different factors of how somebody could develop postpartum depression or anxiety or a slew of different perinatal mood disorders. But a lot of them actually do have to do with barriers to support. And people don't have time to struggle when they're postpartum. It is a lot of work to go and see a therapist. It is can be really fear-inducing to take medication postpartum. And there's a lot of information out there that could help quell those fears. And there's a lot of fantastic therapists. But it takes a lot of effort to care for yourself when you're already caring for a small baby. So And you don't have enough help with that either. And you don't have yeah. enough help with that. Yeah. I always tell my clients, let's get a list of resources 
on your refrigerator because what I don't want is for you to have one boob out of your shirt. You're crying. The baby's crying. Your partner is looking at everybody like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> like, let's move to formula. Like, the, even thinking about certain things that can derail someone's journey of, like, nursing a baby and feeding your baby in any way you need to feed your baby is fine. But thinking about, like, how do we avoid some of these places beforehand? And so I think about prenatal support. I think about how important it is to know that we can't make a plan for what postpartum will be, but like we can plan for it. We can plan for the barriers and the minefields and even thinking about timelines. I talk to my clients about, you know, when your partner goes back to work, that's typically the first run of postpartum depression and anxiety that might come up because it's another transition within a transition. It's like inception. And so it's like, <laughs> and then you have people kind of anticipating their return to work if they're returning to work or grappling with the fact that this is their new life if they're not returning to work. Mm -hmm. And so the, even the conflicts of like choosing old, your old life or your old ways of doing things versus accepting what the new normal is can be, it can wreck you. And when you feel guilty about being excited to go back to work or maybe you feel guilty about staying home and, like, choosing something, like, both are hard choices. Mm -hmm. And so I think that with mental health in the postpartum time, so much of it is that folks are not being validated. Like, they're not being – they're not getting spaces that open them up to be heard. Even in the postpartum group that I lead and facilitate, I see people come in weekly who are like, I just – don't trust myself to make the decisions and I don't think they're right. And my friend is doing this and my mom did that. And my, you know, and even the layers of the generational changes of parenting and how we're screen nation now. And that brings so much more anxiety. When my clients are like, I'm anxious. I'm like, how often are you on your phone when your baby's sleeping? Like, what are you looking at? What are you reading? You have to kind of almost like pull in the bounds like of who gets to exist in your space with you and what gets to exist in your space with you. Mm. And we don't know, we yeah. don't always get practice in boundaries before that. I feel like if it's possible for someone to be protective of what they're consuming during that postpartum period, that that's so important. And the way that I would think about it is, would you would you invite those things into your home? I just remember thinking, oh, I got to mute some people <laughs> because I can remember having this feeling of I am sobbing on my couch, breastfeeding, so sad. You know, and I'm scrolling through and it was almost like I was inviting this person who just, you know, strolled open my door and just said, I've had the best day. I look amazing. <laughs> I've just written a book. I've accomplished <laughs> so much in my career. And, you and know, my baby sleeps eight hours a night. My baby sleeps eight hours a night because I tried this new technique. I'm also selling this tea. And, <laughs> you know, and it was just it felt like, why would I invite that person into my house because if that person actually then turned and looked me in the eyes and saw that I would str was struggling they'd they would come over up. and yeah. they they'd shut up <laughs> yeah. and they would they'd say oh my goodness and I I think that they would care yeah but nobody is nobody's looking me in the eye when I'm when I'm scrolling and so I just had to be so aware of that of these aren't relationships but I actually my brain is responding to them as if they are mm -hmm. um and so just having to be really protective of mm -hmm. what I was consuming because I think a I think more anxiety is coming from that 
in the last 10 years since mm-hmm. that's been available to people than anything. I mean, I think everyone is very anxious because we're looking at our phones several hours a day. It reminds me of the the shift that happens relationally in the postpartum time as well. Like this other piece of your ways of relating to other people completely shift in very dramatic ways and in ways that are it's like day and night. Yeah. And when I'm talking to people who are partnered that are expecting, I talk a lot about you're going to be looking down at your baby so much that you forget to look up at each other and remember that you're a team and that you both don't know what you're doing. And so a birthing person, when the baby cries, something in their body happens that doesn't happen in a partner's body. And so there's this disconnect and also this like, just give me the baby, let me do it. And then that's a message of like, you're not a competent parent or like, I'll do it better. And then just all of these like roles and responsibilities that get delegated without even talking about it. It's just this kind of like, just let me do it. Just Mm -hmm. let me do it. And it's survival um, too. Yeah. And even thinking about, you know, for what happens when a baby cries for anyone, when you're holding a crying baby, you're like trying to fix it or everybody looks to the birthing person and is like, here you go. Like the baby needs you. But really like the baby might just need a position change or like some movement. And I think when babies cry, it brings up the ways that we were parented or that we weren't parented. And it brings up a lot of conversation about internal dialogue, about adequacy. And that I can't even imagine what being sleep deprived for days, how that compounds with talking about my ability to help an, a poor infant, like in just the internal dialogue that happens with that. Oof. Right. Disastrous. Yes. Disastrous. And beyond beyond adequacy. I mean, that is a mm-hmm. ma- <laughs> massive. But I'm also just thinking about the, the times when I'm tired at this point as a like unmarried woman mm-hmm. and I um, fall apart into my like rawest state and suddenly do feel like every single thing that's ever happened to me is now happening right now and yeah. every attachment wound, every hurt, mm-hmm. I'm feeling it like my skin is raw. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, but then a baby's crying. So like yeah. you were saying, all of that attachment mm-hmm. is going to be constantly pushed into yeah and most people have never learned anything about attachment right and don't know why they're getting as anxious as they are or why they're devastated or why they're having flashbacks or why they're i mean the amount of trauma that can come up during that time that is pre-verbal would be immense we do know what we wish that our parents would have worked on before they brought us into the world Mm -hmm. because what we do know is we know the wounds from our parents style of parenting or lack thereof and when we think about our parents and what we know about them as humans and as adults and not just like parents on the pedestal anymore yeah we think about man what would it have been like if my mom or dad had worked on that in therapy and like had that fully realized like this is their stuff and this is how it could potentially impact me as a growing baby and person and like what that cycle becomes and when we don't work through our stuff like we're we're breeding more opportunity to just continue to perpetuate cycles intergenerational transmission of trauma yeah yeah yes yes that is happening not only through dna but it's happening through that it's happening how we parent how we were parented and the postpartum period is deeply triggering it's a mirror it's deeply activating Mm -hmm. it is a mirror there's a lot of room for projection there is a lot of room to 
really fall apart internally and it requires a lot of resources mm-hmm. it requires a lot of internal resources and mm-hmm. so i would say my my work in therapy with clients that are in the postpartum period is very rich in that that we're not just talking about the baby everything comes up we have bumped up against everything and everything that is implicit so a lot of it is being communicated through the body and through the symptoms. Um, But so much of that has to do with what's being brought up and what has been stored in the body forever. Mm -hmm. And birthing and being around a baby in postpartum just like, oh, it just pushes everything to the surface. And it's so, it's so raw. And then you throw that in the hormone blender. So, like, you take all of that stuff and then you, like, put it in a Vitamix that's made of hormones Mm -hmm. and you just swirl it. And just guzzle it down. It's just, it's like a raging sea. (laughs) A little disgusting. Yeah, sorry. I was like, okay, we can go there. Sorry about that. Sorry about that. I'm thinking of, like, James Corden on his, um, on the Late Late Show where he's always having people drink, like, salmon milkshakes. Oh, Oh, my God. That's exactly what it is. Spill your guts or fill your guts. Oh. I have not seen that, but I don't know if I can. No. (laughs) Um, I want to ask before we move on from this subject um, a bit about uh, maybe a little bit of encouragement, I guess, around this. Yes. Um, Mm. Because I think all three of us are are familiar with the phrase good enough mother. Yeah. But considering all the obstacles, I would love for either of you to explain a little bit about like what being a good enough mother during this period would look like. Yes. I just think uh, the concept of the good enough mother is I'm I'm like touching my stomach and my chest right now because it is it's such a soothing concept and it's so important. And I wish that I was I, I just wish that I could package it up and give it to everyone as a baby shower gift. <laughs> that is just like this is this is all you have to be. And this is actually what is best for you and your baby is to be the good enough mother. A good enough mother was as a term that was coined by a pediatrician and psychoanalyst, um, Donald Winnicott. It's basically the concept that in order to prepare children for an imperfect world to give them very small doses of rupture and repair of this imperfection and this return and that that actually builds resilience. Uh, And so to be a perfect mother doesn't actually prepare humans for being in a world that is imperfect. If you can be true to your imperfection that you cannot physically meet every need and you cannot truly read your baby right every single time but that so there's disappointment and then there's return you you try something different and maybe then you meet the need or i have to i have to go and then i return there's this constant rupture and repair and return and that it it just cannot be perfect and that that is actually the gift that you can give to your child but that it's also an invitation to a parent to not have to meet the mark every time that it's actually in the return it's in the try again that there is soothing and that is where secure attachment actually gets built is in the return 
Yeah, and I think, Carter, to to your question about, like, where can we find some encouragement in this, I also think that that's why it's so important to try to parent in community. So things like PEPs groups or postpartum support groups, even nursing, like lactation support groups, those are the places where you hear other people talking about the misses and, like, some of the wins and some of the, like, oh, well. You know, like I tried and I did my best. I think that, again, the isolation piece of staying in the four walls of your home and not connecting with other parents while connecting with other parents can sometimes be harder because you're looking at how other people parent and you're comparing and asking, like, why am I not doing that? There's also this beauty in seeing that everybody is just trying to figure it out. And I have found that my clients who go to peps groups usually stay friends with certain people in those groups and then have these little pods of community that kind of grow and how important it is to be validated and for things to be normalized, especially the feelings of failure of being a parent and the try again and the they will be fine. Mm -hmm. They will be okay. And the difference, and Julie, I'm sure you could speak to this, the difference of the fragility of the first-time parent versus the second, third, fourth time, like Mm -hmm. where you have another kid and you're like, I'm not going to freak out about that. Yeah. We're not going to freak out about that. That's (laughs) just not, that's a non-issue. There was a phrase that I remember. It was like the first child is made of glass and the second child is made of rubber or something like that. (laughs) Um, And I can remember I did a lot of nannying through grad school and I just remember thinking for my first child, I, I can treat her like rubber because all all kids are kids are kids. She doesn't have to be glass. That's a mindset. <laughs> just like trying to like speak that over myself. And God, I have such a um a free spirited, climbing strong girl that I really I feel proud of myself in some ways. I'm sure that I was treated her like glass in some ways, but really tried to say she can fall and she can learn. And unless she's going to crack something very important, <laughs> I, I'm going to try to let her do it herself. And it was really difficult, but also really rewarding mm-hmm. because she learned to go down the stairs at, you know, really young. And then she has more more independence. So. The hope is in the community. The hope is in a lot of the healing. There is a there is a gift in postpartum that it is an invitation to a lot of healing. And I know that we've painted a picture of how difficult the time is and that period is. And, and it really is. And it is an invitation to embodiment. And it's an invitation to healing. And it's an invitation to attunement. It's an invitation to reparent yourself <laughs> um, while you're learning to parent th- this tiny little person, to view this small person as so precious and to realize that you yourself were also once that precious. And so to actually stop and realize that some of the shame scripts that can come up in pregnancy and postpartum actually have an antidote if you start to really look at the situation you're in, that you were once this small precious yes. innocent little person and that you that that part of you is still in there and deserves so much kindness and loving care and tenderness and that as a parent or as a mother you've just been born into this role and you're like you spoke to before you're you're just fragile and you just really need holding and you need mm-hmm. kindness and you need grace and you need support you need permission to take care of yourself you need permission to leave and you need kindness that returning is actually part of the process and that's part of the goodness. So I think there's 
Yes. So much hope. Yeah. Yes. You're speaking so much to like what a baby needs. Like, yeah. you know, that I tell clients when a baby's crying and you've done everything you can do, it's usually just that they need loving arms to cry in. Yeah. And isn't that oh, to know that, yeah. to know, that, right. It's not to just know about that, fixing it. Exactly. No. And to know that as, as, a, as an adult who is falling apart or who is broken or depleted or exhausted, that at the end of the day, if you know you have loving arms to be in and that's all that you need, mm-hmm. it, it makes this process of, you know, getting it right with parenting so much different I think when all they need is loving arms to just process something like they're just working through something yeah and we forget that babies they remember their births they went through a lot in their births and they sometimes have to cry and it's called release crying and they have to like be in loving arms and just let it fly and what 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 does it mean right to give yourself permission to be like can you just hold me yes someone hold me while i hold my baby or so i can hold my baby yes Yes. so i can be present yes oh i'm so aware of that not even being a thought that so many people get to have about themselves Mm. that they could Mm -hmm. be in process or that they would just get to fall apart somewhere yeah and so for you to be able to put it that way both of you into this like call to the good enough mother on behalf of the baby is such a beautiful beautiful thing but I think it also is such a resonant important message for any person trying to figure out how to parent themselves yes that like when you're freaking out it doesn't have to be something you automatically just go to fix Mm -mm. it gets to be something where you just like try to find some loving arms either your own or like some kind of practice or ritual around it or find a way to be held yes yes As mentioned earlier, those wonderful retreats and workshops that Julie and Davna are offering are going to be March 28th in the Madrona neighborhood of Seattle and June 20th in Woodenville, Washington. Of course, all this information will be in our description um, wherever you found the initial link for this podcast. So you can find that there and reach out to them with any other questions. As always, we would so love to hear from you. If you have any questions or any comments, um, you can reach out to us on social media as well at Opal Food and Body on Instagram and Opal Food and Body on Facebook. And if you want to learn more about our programming, PHP, IOP, and outpatient services and our new athlete clinic, you can go to opalfoodandbody.com. Make sure you subscribe to The Appetite on your preferred podcast app so you're up to date on our next releases. Thank you so much to Jackstraw Cultural Center for sound engineering, to Aaron Davidson, who we already mentioned, for the Appetite's original music, and to, <laughs> I don't normally say that, so I forget what I'm saying next, um, and to Hans Anderson for editing. Thank you so much for joining us, and we will talk to you next time. Bye.